Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a legal podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin, and I'm here with Kimberly Robinson. And this week, we're going to talk about the new Justice Kavanaugh, who made his oral argument debut this week. He heard four cases in his new role as the junior justice on the Supreme Court. Before we get to his performance in those cases, let's take a quick recap of how we got there. Kimberly, can you help us out with that? Well, sure. So Justice Kavanaugh was confirmed by a pretty close vote on Saturday. It's actually the second closest vote in Supreme Court history behind the famous Justice Stanley Matthews, who, of course, we all know and love, um, who was originally nominated to the high court bench by uh, President Rutherford B. Hayes, but wasn't actually confirmed uh, until he was re-nominated by President Garfield. And his confirmation came by just a one-vote margin. It was 24 to 23. So Kavanaugh actually was confirmed by two votes with the final tally coming in at 50 uh, to 48, but still a pretty close vote. Um, But it doesn't matter. He's on the bench for the lifetime appointment nonetheless. It's like the bar. You just need to pass, right? Exactly. And then after he was confirmed by the Senate, uh, he still needed to take those oaths of office, right? Right. And he took them very quickly. Uh, he took them that evening on Saturday evening uh, to pretty large protests outside the Supreme Court. And so there are actually two judicial or two oaths of office that are required for um, Supreme Court justices. Uh, The first is a constitutional oath that um, was administered by the chief justice. And the other uh, is the judicial oath that was administered by Kavanaugh's former boss and the man whom he is replacing on the Supreme Court, Anthony Kennedy. And on top of that, there was this other ceremony at the White House, right? Well, that's right. So on Monday evening, uh, they did a more public ceremony in the White House that was uh, broadcast. And uh, it was interesting that President Trump began his remarks on Justice Kavanaugh uh, with an apology. Really? To who? Or to whom? Whichever it is. (laughs) Well, let's take a listen. Here's the president. I would like to begin tonight's proceeding differently than perhaps any other event of such magnitude. On behalf of our nation, I want to apologize to Brett and the entire Kavanaugh family for the terrible pain and suffering you have been forced to endure. Those who step forward to serve our country deserve a fair and dignified evaluation, not a campaign of political and personal destruction based on lies and deception. What happened to the Kavanaugh family violates every notion of fairness, decency, and due process. Our country, a man or a woman, must always be presumed innocent unless and until proven guilty. And with that, I must state that you, sir, under historic scrutiny, were proven innocent. Thank you. 
Now, the president, of course, was referencing allegations uh, from Dr. Ford that Kavanaugh had sexually assaulted her while both of them was in high school. Kavanaugh, though, acknowledged the contentious confirmation process but said he's not bitter over it. Here he is at that ceremony in the White House. The Senate confirmation process was contentious and emotional. That process is over. My focus now is to be the best justice I can be. I take this office with gratitude and no bitterness. On the Supreme Court, I will seek to be a force for stability and unity. My goal is to be a great justice for all Americans and for all of America. I will work very hard to achieve that goal. I was not appointed to serve one party or one interest, but to serve one nation. America's constitution and laws protect every person of every belief and every background. Every litigant in the Supreme Court can be assured that I will listen to their arguments with respect and an open mind. Every American can be assured that I will be an independent and impartial justice devoted to equal justice under law. Although the Senate confirmation process tested me as it has tested others, it did not change me. My approach to judging remains the same. A good judge must be an umpire, a neutral and impartial decider who favors no litigant or policy. A judge must be independent and must interpret the law, not make the law. A judge must interpret statutes as written, and a judge must interpret the Constitution as written, informed by history and tradition and precedent. So, Jordan, Justice Kavanaugh is right. The confirmation process is over. He has his lifetime appointment on the bench. And just last week, we saw him take the high court bench uh, with what he called his team of nine, the other justices. And three of those cases were in criminal cases. Um, So why don't you tell me um, some impressions that you have or you had of Justice Kavanaugh? Sure. So his first day, that was a Tuesday after the Columbus Day holiday, there were back-to-back arguments in sentencing cases under the Armed Career Criminal Act. Uh, I was planning on being pretty much the only reporter there that day, but since it was also Justice Kavanaugh's first day, it was quite crowded in the press section and throughout the rest of the courtroom. Justice Kavanaugh's uh, family was there. Justice Kennedy was there for the first argument, at least. I think he got too bored and then left. Uh, for the second argument. But I'd say overall, the impression that I took away from Justice Kavanaugh's questioning during those arguments where he asked some pretty routine, normal questions was that it was a pretty normal day. Obviously, there wasn't any of the partisanship that marked the hearings. I don't think, you know, we were expecting that. No one accused him of sexual assault or anything during the arguments. So he wasn't really challenged himself. He's the one asking the questions now. And he seemed relatively comfortable up there, I think. You know, one thing I was a little surprised about were that there were no protests in the Supreme Court room. We've seen kind of occasional protests uh, break out in the Supreme Court. Those have been kind of over Citizens United and some of the court's decisions. Um, But we didn't see any of that on last week during the arguments. Yeah, I was thinking that too. I saw on my way in, there were a few protesters in the back, just a handful, still some of that same... uh, 
Handmaid's Tale uh, theme, but there wasn't anybody during the argument, like you said, I was sort of half expecting that or wondering if that was going to happen during the whole two-hour session, but we did not see that. We saw Justice Kavanaugh ask questions to both advocates in the first case, for example, in a case that dealt with uh, robbery in Florida and how much force is needed in order for it to qualify as a violent felony in order to trigger this mandatory minimum. Uh, he asked a question to the uh, defendant in the case, uh, Stokeling's lawyer, about uh, how much force should be required. So why don't we follow what Curtis Johnson seemed to do in applying those general statements to the specific statute at issue here, and why wouldn't that then encompass the Florida statute, which requires more than, say, a tap on the shoulder? And he also asked a question to the government lawyer, too, about uh, how much force should be required. But Curtis Johnson says substantial degree of force, as Justice Kagan points out, and how are we supposed to deal with that language in the Curtis Johnson opinion if we're trying to follow Curtis Johnson uh, strictly. Again, this was based on uh, the same precedent. And again, we heard Kavanaugh talk about precedent throughout his confirmation hearings, and this was a, a theme he continued asking about in his questioning on the court. So, Jordan, the criminal law theme carried over into Kavanaugh's second day, uh, right? What, in, what was the first case about? So, right. So this was a, another one of these crime and immigration or crimigration overlap cases. Uh, this was an immigrant detention case where the ACLU, which publicly opposed Kavanaugh's confirmation, represented a group of immigrants against the Trump administration. And this day, too, like the first day, was fairly calm. I wouldn't say it was an overly contentious argument either. Uh, but we did see Justice Kavanaugh, I think, more firmly plant himself on the Trump administration's side in questioning the uh, lawyer there for the ACLU. He was talking about how Congress intended for there to be mandatory detention in the case. That was the issue, whether uh, immigrants who aren't picked up for years later and then their government initiates immigration proceedings against them, whether they can get uh, bond hearings or whether the law means that they are mandatorily detained and they can't get a hearing. That was the issue in the case. And Kavanaugh looked to the history of the statute, and he was questioning the ACLU's lawyer about uh, basically that Congress intended for there not to be bond hearings in, in those cases. And yet Congress did not put in a time limit, whether it's reasonable time, as Justice Breyer says, or a year, or two years, or six months, or 48 hours. Uh, and so when you combine those two points, Congress knew it wouldn't be immediate, and yet Congress did not put in a time limit, that raises a real question for me whether we should be superimposing a time limit into the statute when Congress, at least as I read it, did not itself do so. Well, another thing that was interesting is that we saw President Trump's other high court pick, Justice Gorsuch, who was not necessarily on the same page as Kavanaugh or his other Republican-appointed colleagues there. 30 years and the government was aware of him the entire time and chose not to act, kind of a latches argument. Is there any limit on the government's power? So it looks like Gorsuch might wind up being the, the swing vote there like he was in a, another crimmigration case, DeMaia, last term.
Yeah, Jordan, I think that's a really interesting point. Uh, and it was kind of fun to watch, uh, you know, Justice Gorsuch. He sits on the opposite side of the bench from Justice Kavanaugh. And he sits next to Justice Sotomayor and Justice Breyer, who are kind of um, his ideological opposite. Right. But we actually seen, particularly with Justice Sotomayor and Justice Gorsuch, a really kind of playful and friendly relationship between those two on that end of the bench. And and so in that crimmigration argument, we saw a lot of passing of notes uh, between Justice Breyer and Justice Sotomayor and Justice Gorsuch, and it really seemed like maybe they came to some agreement um, about the case uh, right there in oral arguments based on those notes. I actually joked to the reporter beside me that it seemed like they got three votes for something uh, right then and there. Uh, and I'm wondering if we could maybe see that kind of collaboration happening on the other side of the bench uh, between Justice Kavanaugh and his seatmate, uh, Justice Kagan. Um, you know, those two worked together when they were at Harvard uh, during uh, when President Trump first nominated Justice, Justice Kavanaugh. He made a point to say that he was really appreciative that uh, then Dean Kagan had hired him and kind of gave a little diversity to uh, the faculty at Harvard Law School. Um, this is ideological diversity, you're saying? Uh, yes. I'm not sure that he added uh, a lot of other kinds of diversity to the law school uh, faculty, but definitely some ideological uh, diversity. And uh, you know, she's kind of known as a consensus builder. She spoke recently about the need for the Supreme Court to not be so divisive. So that'll be a relationship that I'm interested to watch. The two of them already seem like they're getting along pretty well. Uh, you know, when Justice uh, Kavanaugh first came into uh, the courtroom on his very first day, uh, it seemed like Justice Kagan maybe broke the tension a little bit. And, uh, you know, all eyes, of course, were on Justice Kavanaugh. But she leaned over and she kind of whispered something to him and he laughed and they had a good chuckle. And it reminded me of that point during um, President Trump's State of the Union, where he specifically called out, you know, Justice Gorsuch and what a great victory it had been from the Trump administration. Right. And, and there was that really stern look on Justice Gorsuch's face where he just seemed like he was hating every second of it. And Justice Kagan leaned over and, and kind of said something to him. And you saw him kind of maybe relax a little bit. And that seemed like what she had been doing with Justice Kavanaugh, too. And then at the end of the argument, you know, she she shook his hand, um, kind of, I, I suspect, to congratulate him on his first, you know, day on the bench. So uh, I think that relationship will be interesting to watch and really interesting that kind of at the two ends of the uh, of the bench, we have, you know, these very conservative justices next to these very or these more liberal justices and to see how those relationships might affect um, kind of some consensus building on the court. Yeah. Well, they figure you're going to be together for 30 years or so. You might as well make the most of it, right? Yeah, I guess that would be that would be a good way to go. Of course, you know, it's not that they're just going to be together for 30 years. I mean, these justices all know Justice Kavanaugh. So, um, you know, they're not coming into this with a clean slate. They, you know, they're right. already familiar with each other. And so now that we have Justice Kavanaugh's first sitting out of the way, what's coming up next? Uh, well, uh, oral arguments are going to be on a break for a couple of weeks. They won't resume until October 29th. Um, and then that sitting, which although it starts in October, is known as the November sitting, um, is a pretty low-key argument session, kind of like this first one has been. 
there are some important cases that are that are um, big for businesses, in particular a class action case about you know what kind of remedies you can get for a class. Um, but you know nothing that's going to be too hot button or contentious um, in that sitting, except maybe perhaps um, a death penalty case, right, Jordan? Yeah, that's the case of Russell Bucklew. That one should be a, a pretty close case. Uh, that has to do with uh, lethal injection. There's a prisoner there who's challenging the way that the state wants to execute him. That's a case out of Missouri. Uh, this guy Bucklew, he has a lot of serious health issues, and he says that if the state goes along and executes him the way they want to, by way of lethal injection, it's going to cause a really gruesome spectacle with exploding and bloody tumors and all sorts of gross stuff like that. And so obviously he does not want to be executed. Nobody does. But he's proposing an alternative method of execution, a lethal gas. But um, the state uh, does not want to do it his way. And the the law actually makes it harder than you think it might to, to die the, the way you want to, even if you're willing to be executed. And the reason, one of the reasons I think that'll be a pretty contentious case is that when it came to the court, it was a very contentious vote in terms of whether to grant a, a stay of execution to him in the first place. So justices Thomas Alito and Gorsuch, it's not rare for them to dissent from a decision of the court to grant an execution stay. But Chief Justice Roberts actually joined them in dissenting of a stay to Russell Bucklew. And that's when Justice Kennedy was still on the court. And so that tells us that Justice Kennedy joined the four Democratic appointees to grant the stay. And so in some ways, it was sort of a 5-4 case there. And that's still not even the type of issue that Justice Kennedy would necessarily rule in an inmate's favor for anyway. And so now you have this sort of 5-4 decision already going into the argument. And so that's way more information than you wanted to know about about that case. But I do think it's going to be a, a super interesting and, and contentious case. And so that'll be an interesting one to watch. And this is a situation, kind of a unique situation uh, with the D.C. Circuit that, you know, there the judges don't deal with the death penalty. And so Justice Ginsburg, who started on the D.C. Circuit, said that was actually one of the hardest things for her was the fact that, you know, when she came to the Supreme Court, this was a whole new area of law. And so we don't really have, um, you know, case law from Justice Kavanaugh on this issue um, so I think all eyes will kind of be on him to see you know, how he views these things. Absolutely. I think it's uh, he's going to be the tie-breaking vote there. Well, thank you, Jordan, for helping to, um, you know, take a preview of Justice Kavanaugh and his first week on the bench. Uh, you can follow along with all of the Justice Kavanaugh or Supreme Court-related news at news.bloomberglaw.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening. And thanks to C-SPAN and Oye for the clips that you heard today.